0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And I'm Joe Newton. Our guest today is Dr. Julian Erbo. the co-author of The Compassion Project. Welcome to the show.
2: Well, wow. uh, thank you, and hello, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Could you give our listeners a little background of where you grew up?
2: Okay, so I'm uh, from the UK. Um, I'm uh, I was brought up in uh, initially in a little village just outside of London. Um, my father was a farmer. Uh, my mother ended up working. Um, in television, and um, uh, we moved to London. They they separated and uh, divorced, and in fact, my father died relatively soon after. Uh, so I grew up from about the age of nine onwards in North London, which, uh, because I'm getting old and grey, was quite a time ago. Uh, but it was it was a nice place to live. I watched
0: your uh, video last night myself, and you know I've. I can't say I, I can't say I was mesmerized by it because I, I, you know, your 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 whole context of compassion runs runs very deeply with me because of how I look at my ministry and how I try to practice my ministry, and I'm just wondering why we can't have it all throughout the world without having to have all these. You know, all these teachings and all these things that are going on.
2: I mean, I, I, it is wonderful of what you're trying to do. That's yeah, a great point you made, because uh, compassion has been associated with uh, religions. Actually, you can look at compassion from an evolutionary perspective. And, and you can find the markers of compassion, whether they're biochemical, hormonal, in our genes, wherever. You can find them throughout the animal kingdom. Mm. Uh, and what this means is that survival of the kindest is a much better phrase than survival of the fittest mm. survival of the fittest was not something invented by darwin it was invented by herbert spencer and it was the beginning of social darwinism which is uh frankly racist mm. so actually we survive by being kind to each other and and uh This, if you like, is the underlying reason why compassionate communities are so powerful. And when you put that into healthcare, you see changes which we have never seen before uh, in population health with reduction in whole population emergency admissions. And what this shows is that this business of compassion Mm. is powerful and deeply embedded in every one of us and every one of us has the opportunity to be compassionate it's a very heartwarming message
1: so uh if compassion is is in that it's embedded within each and every one of us why is it then harder for many people to practice compassion
2: you know that's a that's a, a an enormous question mm. and uh Uh, There's some really, uh, I don't think there's any one neat answer, Um, but I think there are a number of factors to take into account. Firstly, I don't think people appreciate that they have this compassionate potential. And I think merely just talking about it and recognising it is a big help. It's a way of saying, yes, we can put this into practice. Mm. Secondly, there are some really curious things about human beings in that although we have this compassionate potential, what happens, how much that potential is expressed is very much a product of of our development of who we are as humans and what our influences are in childhood. And in particular, one of the things that we suffer from is that um, if we are traumatised, as a child mm-hmm. that has a profound impact on how we function as a human being and furthermore there is a really curious fact that as humans develop power whether this is wealth or politics or business they become less compassionate
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and then and then that lack of compassion is manipulated from a power perspective uh, which stimulates things which are not quite so helpful, fear, anxiety, greed, Mm. we have to be absolutely mindful about making sure that our actions are compassionate. Mm. And we have to really participate in the journey of becoming more compassionate. I look
0: at compassion, and I agree with you with everything you've said. But yet we live in a society, at least over here, over the pond, where compassion can be looked at as a weakness. And as you were just talking about how it is in the business world or wherever it is that you, you acquire all these things, whether they be money, power, uh, prestige, you lose the compassion. How do we fight? How do we challenge that and to remind folks uh, of this compassion that we all have uh, within our
2: souls? So uh, I think, uh, excuse me, we're in a rather unique position because what we're seeing is evidence from uh, a number of different sources that actually uh, compassion makes makes sense and it makes sense from things running smoothly. It makes sense in the cost of things, that services run better and more cheaply. It makes sense from cohesion, uh, social inclusion. It makes sense in so many different ways, and uh, and and I think that you know your show, and, and I started a podcast called "Survival of the Kindness, and. We're running this Elevate Compassion Summit series, and there are incredible work going on all over the world, which is talking about this stuff. We Mm. have to talk about it. There has to be a challenge in there, which is a personal challenge. And the personal challenge is, can I be a little bit more compassionate? And there has to be a public challenge. And the public challenge is that when people are not being compassionate, then there has to be a question about what are you doing? There has to be a sense of challenge about it. I think we've got an awful long way to go because it's so easy to look around at the terrible things that are going on.
1: Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying is really powerful. And before we dive into your your book and your research, uh, was compassion modeled for you as a child?
2: So that's that's a great question. And um uh, I, both my parents were um, uh, Jewish refugees from Germany and Czechoslovakia, and um, I, it's it, that's not even a question. It's a great question, Saul. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I think we lived in a, you know, particularly the first part of our lives, we lived in a, a relatively small community where people were, just friendly with each other and you felt a sense of warmth about what was going on. I don't have any clear recollection of somebody I can point to and go, they were so inspiring, they were so compassionate. Mm. So I, I don't really know where that comes from with me. It was just happens to be there and um, I've not seen a reason to give it up yet. <laughs> <laughs> no i'm
1: glad that you know you you've embraced that and taken it in because the message of survival of the fittest seemed to appeal more to people than survival of the kindest and yeah. sometimes i wonder uh-huh. why
2: <laughs> i i it's a, it, I think it's immensely complex uh i think we do have to talk about it i think we have to enact it in our lives and i think we have to challenge and uh, it's a journey, you know, it's it's a long path and, and it's vital because um, how are we going to um, survive the ravishes of climate change if we don't do it together? Mm. I mean, uh, it's how we cooperate that's going to make the difference.
1: Yeah. So what was the motivation for this book, The Compassion Project?
2: So, um so I, I my, uh, I'm a doctor. My clinical work in life was in um, palliative medicine. I looked after people who are dying. I got interested in uh, compassionate communities and what's called public health palliative care, and put it into my clinical practice and also uh, into uh, our our service organisation. And around about 2015, 2016, I was doing some work in the county of Somerset, which is in the west of England, with end-of-life care and compassionate communities. And somebody said, oh, you've got to go uh, off to Froome to meet the people there. Froome is a small market town of 28,000 people in Somerset. And so I went along to the medical centre there, and then we just got talking, and we realised we were doing the same thing, so we teamed up. Mm. And then um, after a few months uh, of us working together together, we were facing the annual agony of a funding cycle. Uh, So um, uh, Helen, the lead GP, Helen Kingston, thought, well, let's write a paper. So she drafted something, and I had a look and said, well, look, I think I can get some other figures from this and the work I've already been doing. And we got uh, a whole load of data, and what we saw was that the emergency admissions to hospital in Froome had gone down by 14%, whilst in Somerset they'd gone up by Uh, by 30 percent and and we knew the significance of that because there are no uh, interventions which have ever reduced emergency admissions across the whole population so we realized that through trying to do the right thing for people we'd stumbled upon what if this was a tablet uh, that could do that it would be a medical miracle of the likes we've not seen before and we knew what we were doing and we were Uh, systematic in how we applied it and the results are absolutely dramatic and so uh, I thought it'd be a really good idea to um, write a book about it so that everyone had the opportunity of seeing how this can be done this is not something to hang on to and so it's mine and no one else can have it that doesn't work (laughs) so uh
1: just for our listeners here in the United States what steps um did you guys do to cultivate this intense compassion in the community to even change health outcomes?
2: So uh, there are two components to it. One is uh, what happens inside the, the uh, primary care team, the what's called family practice in the U S uh, and, and the other is building compassionate communities. So actually it's a community development intervention and, uh, If we were to start on the community development side of things, there are four kind of major components. One is that if you go to any community, you can start uh, listing out all the stuff that's going on in that community, whether it's uh, um, running, reading, choirs, doesn't matter, knitting groups, absolutely anything. And what you find is there there are hundreds of these small groups happening all the time. So, so you can put them on the internet and make a list of them and make it available for the for the whole, you know, for everyone to see. And then you have got, well, okay, um we've got this list which everyone can see and news. Um and we're going to start something called the talking cafe because there are some people who who are lonely, would just like to chat, and then we think, okay, we've got talking cafe, we have got the list we will start to train people uh, on how to use a list and let them know about the Talking Café. These are called community connectors. So this is the bit of magic that happens. So far in Froom, uh, there are over 700 people trained as community connectors. They're activated citizens, nothing more, nothing complicated. We know that the community connectors have 20 conversations a year um, as a minimum. 700 people, 20 conversations a year. That's 14,000 little compassionate conversations in a town of 28,000 people in, 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 in within a year. It's If you imagine that you walk into a cafe in Froome and you chat to the cafe owner and you're just talking about your life or, you know, like you do when you chat and you say, okay, I've got this problem at the moment... The cafe owner is listening and the cafe owner might say, look, I don't know what the answer to your problem, but I know where you might be able to provide the answer. And that way, wherever you go, whether you're in the library, in the doctor's clinic, in, the, in a cafe, in a wine bar, down the hairdressers, there'll be people listening out for you. And that, it, the, that business, about 700 people, is a deep dive into the community. So the next step is about, you know, people want to uh, have to come together to do make groups, to do things together. And so you can help that process about how you stimulate the groups, because what we find is that um, when people come together and chat with each other, they just have a nice time. That's the natural compassion coming out, the natural kindness. And you make friendships and you laugh. And you have a nice time, and it doesn't matter if it's in the men's shed, in a running club, in a hairdresser's, doesn't matter, cooking mm-hmm. group, it could be anything. So you stimulate the groups, and the final bit of the uh, of the kind of community intervention is about having what are called health connectors who will go out into the community. And, and help set up these groups and support people and also do one-to-one work with people who want to connect to the community but are not quite sure how to do it. The other side of it is, is about the medical centre and how the medical centre changes and to uh, actively engage in the routine clinical sitting, setting with all the stuff that's going on in the community. So just to illustrate it, it may be that, um, that you're, uh, and this could be a young person, it could be a young mother, it could be a, a, an elderly person, They you go to see the doctor for whatever reason. Um, and then you, uh, you're talking about your problem and, and the doctor might ask and, and what's going on in your life and you might start to describe, well, actually, you're feeling lonely and isolated And that's where the magic starts to happen because your doctor says, well, I know how uh, you might be helped by that. And uh, uh, there's all this stuff going on in the community, which you may know about already, or you can go and see one of these health connectors. So that what happens is that the compassion and the social connection become embedded into the health system. And uh, the key kind of... uh, fact for this is that social relationships are, are more powerful uh, at helping us live long, healthy lives and giving up smoking, drinking, diet, exercise, and anything else you care to mention. Four times more powerful uh, than taking a blood pressure tablet to keep us alive. And uh, the person who did this work is uh, Professor Julianne Holt-Lundstadt, who produced this remarkable paper uh, in 2010, looking at the impact of social relationships on health and well-being and, and found that actually social relationships are, even over the small period of 7.5 years, help us to keep alive more than anything else. So it, it's uh, making use of this magic in, uh, in healthcare. Julian,
0: how did this play out during covid I'd be really interested to see how it helped folks during this time of isolation.
2: So, so if you imagine that by the time COVID arrives, which is kind of April 2000 or March 2020, is that this project had been going on at the beginnings of it at 2013, that what you've got in Froom is this incredible infrastructure of connectedness where people are moving to the town because it's known as a friendly place. Hmm. And what happens is that when the lockdown happens, the the social infrastructure of how to look after each other is already there. And so people do things like they uh, look out for the neighbours. They form Facebook groups. They form uh, mutual aid COVID-19 groups. Proom Town Council produced a leaflet that said look out for the five people around you. That if people are feeling lonely and isolated, then the health centre knew who all the people were and how to connect them up, and that there are people who can chat to people and look after their welfare. Check, make sure that if they need shopping, that they look up. If you know the person just two doors down from you and you know they're vulnerable and you know that the uh, that they can't get out because they're protecting because they've got a chronic illness. you're just going to knock on their door and talk to them through the window or whatever it is in a safe way and say, "I'm down the shops, is there anything I can get you?" or mm-hmm. do you feel like you need a chat just because you're feeling a bit lonely? so the the point is that when when you develop this this warm hearted community infrastructure of social connectedness, that that just comes into play so that people are not left out, that people are linked up and cared for. And of course, the interesting thing about that is, of course, it has an amazing impact on neuroimmune systems. You know, the establishment of the relationship between immune health and social relationships is really clear. So it's really important, like not being lonely and isolated is a key component of, of how you keep healthy during the pandemic.
1: Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break. Our guest is Dr. Julian Erbo. He's the author of The Compassion Project. He'll also be speaking at the Elevate Compassion Virtual Conference on June 17th. So please get your tickets today. We'll be right back.
2: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org.
1: I'm Sally and You're listening to the Hospice Chaplains' Show. We continue our conversation with Dr. Ebo. Uh, the, the talk cafes, you know, there's really something special about it. I never heard about it until I listened to your uh, TED talk yesterday. And uh, Joe, you spoke about doing something during the pandemic to bring your community together.
0: It was uh, interesting. Uh, watching TV, watching all of what was going on when we were shut down and isolated. uh kept seeing the the, the, the pictures in Europe of uh, people on, on the balconies and they're playing music, singing, uh, clapping, whatever it was, just to let people know that they were still there and that they were in community. Uh, in my little community, I put together a little flyer and I walked around our neighborhood and put it in people's mailboxes Inviting them to come on to come out of their house at four o'clock in the afternoon. I called it a cocktail hour so that we could check on each other and see how we were handling this whole thing of being isolated. Uh, got a very nice response. We maintained that uh, that grouping. Uh, it's been. St- it's still in. It's still working. It's still going. There's different times we do different things, but now we're able to get together in a little more. Together, groups. Uh, we've actually been out to dinner as well. I had my next door neighbor who told me, said, Joe, you know what? If you hadn't started this thing, this, this cocktail hour, I don't know what would have happened with me. Uh, she was a widow and she would have been exceedingly alone. And, uh, you know, hearing you talk about it there, Julian, about the compassion, it doesn't take a lot. To do it <laughs> from what I can gather
2: i I think your yours is a perfect example, Joe, because uh, you know it's a simple thing, which is a, like a small step, like just look out for your neighbor, it's anyone can do, and the profound impact of it yeah. can be completely transformative absolutely and you, you when you hear that really heartwarming story, then you can see how it has such a big impact on people's lives. And it's great for you. It's heartwarming to you and it's heartwarming for her and it's heartwarming for any, for all our listeners who are listening in and they hear (laughs) that story, they get a little uh, shot of oxytocin, which is our our so-called socializing hormone that makes us feel healthy and happy. Mm. You know, uh, I think you, and if you imagine that process magnified you know why not? That happened spontaneously. You were motivated to do something, and then you got up and did. You got up and did this thing that was quite simple, and mm-hmm. then that had a profound effect on the people around you. Well, why aren't we doing that all the time? Exactly. Why don't we do that with everything? Exactly. No. Yeah.
1: Good questions. So, what is the the state of loneliness in the United Kingdom?
2: Well, when you ask the question about. Uh, do you ever feel lonely? Probably half the people uh, are going to say yes. And I don't think that's just in the UK. And and as people get older, as they become physically more uh, isolated, less mobile, then loneliness can increase. And in particular, um, that um, children are so mobile now, they live in different parts of the country or different parts of the world, and it's it's easy for communities to become atomized and in a way if you think about it you know human uh, evolution began maybe 1.5 or 2 million years ago and uh, and we grew up and evolved in these small communities of uh, 50 100 people or whatever it was and and we felt secure and just used to having people around us and relying on each other and and that that this is something, if you like, that is uh, uh, really primal in our evolution. And, and the fact that our communities have become atomized in the modern world means that we have to reinvent what community is. Mm. We have to respond to uh, the natural things inside us and create communities, and that's what Compassionate Communities is. That's why we're doing it
1: what aspects of the from model could be transferable to a different environment like inner city chicago
2: yeah so a great question and we've got projects going on all over the world so uh, we have got projects going on in florida we have got projects going on in columbia in london and 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 the 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 essence of it is around these two components that i mentioned the first is about community building and and that's community development. Community building can go; it does go on everywhere around the world. So, um, as from from a, a palliative care perspective, um, I helped start up and was vice president of public health palliative care international. And we see projects going on in all all continents, all over the world. I've visited so many different places for you know, from Taiwan to uh, around Europe to. Canada is incredible stuff going on in Canada, and it's it's community development is something that is uh, innate to human beings, and it's just about uh, how you get communities to work together. If you do that, then then it, all it takes is for the healthcare to recognise the powerful impact of social connectedness, social relationships, which can be found in community, and then. You can build that into your healthcare. And you've got lots of stuff in the US. I mean, you talk about Chicago, you know, you've got the ABCD Institute and the incredible work of John McKnight and the, the profound, deep history of uh, community building that you see there. You've got things like Weave, the social fabric project started by David Brooks. There's so many different examples of, of um, the manifestation of. Uh, community building that is applicable everywhere, and uh, if you want to hear about how to do it in a city, mm. um, I, I, there were there were two. Uh, I did two podcasts on survival of the kindest, that are fantastic examples of it. One is with Angela Fell, who's a community builder in a town in the northwest of England called Wigan, which is the last place you might suspect community building to take place, and then another one with um, Paul Wright. Um, who, who's done community building, which she, uh, which is calling street connecting, which is great in in Birmingham, uh, in the Midlands, which is a uh, one of the most deprived areas in the UK. This is something you can do everywhere, and um, I would say that there's uh, one, a one kind of key component to it, and and uh, talking about talking with Angela about it. Um, is that quite often, you know, when people are even in non, uh, for the non-profits, they want to get a grant for something. What they do is that they'll do a map of misery. They'll do a map of where everything is wrong in the community. Hmm. But you can do something different. If you're community building, you can build a treasure map. And the treasure map are all the great things in your community. So what are the treasures of the people that's that's individual treasures. You might have people who've got incredible skills in, I don't know, they might be professionals, they might be midwives or social workers, or they might be, they might be basketball players. It's a gift that they can bring to the community and they bring people together. There might be people in the community who just wander around and say hello to people. And what are the treasures of the places? Where are the places that people gather? Because those places are where what, what Cormac Russell and John McKnight called the associational life takes place. Hmm. When humans come together, they start talking to each other and build relationships. So, you know, if you look at what we're doing now, this is, uh, we're chatting with each other in a nice way. I feel like I know you guys now and we love, it's <laughs> great. You know, that's what happens. People come together and chat. You know, that's how you build relationships. So, so there are terrific examples of how you can do this in inner cities. And in a way, uh, one of the ways of talking about it, which is, it's not a great phrase, but nevertheless uh, is is one that's used, is social capital. And that was uh, a phrase invented by... Um, uh, the name's gone out of my head. I had it a second ago. He wrote Bowling Alone, which is a primary uh, text of uh, um, uh, writing about social cohesion. And in many ways, in poor areas... Social capital is more available than in rich areas. You know, people help each other out more, so it's more readily there to work with.
0: What do you see as obstacles that need to be overcome?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And that's a, uh, how do you get people to change their behavior? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I think there are on an individual level there are three ways that people get to change their behavior one is through uh, reasoning and logic and you can you can you know read things related to compassion and go oh yeah that's a good idea i've got to do that i if i want to live a long healthy happy life that's the thing to do the second is is uh, emotion about um uh, you feel like being compassionate is the right thing and then you change what you're going to do, and the third thing is is inspiration. Is you see a great example of something, and so you just feel inspired to do it. But on uh, there's a uh, that I would say that the the biggest obstacle we face is um, the direction that our societies have taken, particularly over the last hundred years, or you know, more even. Um, which is about you know, the belief that uh, uh, increasing wealth is increasing happiness. And, um, and then the vested interests that come behind that, you know, the powerful um, military-agricultural-industrial complex which, in which uh, you're sold uh, the idea that if you just have more, the happier you get. But there's a way of thinking about this to say which is wealth is in our relationships, not in our physical possession, And it's going to take a social movement because the people in the positions of power and authority are not keen to give that up. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, we need mm-hmm. to uh, make this a social movement which everyone joins in and, and that actually uh, what binds us as human beings far outweighs what separates us. And so it's about finding common ground, finding ways of talking to each other just about uh, how we are in our daily life. And it's, it's everyone being a little bit more compassionate. And a um, long journey.
0: <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a lot of obstacles overcome in that journey. So, yeah.
1: so uh, we both work in hospice. And uh, I could tell you one of the most uh, challenges in our field uh, is social isolation. And there's a lot of loneliness in, in the dying patients. And in most cases, uh, and, and it's really sad to see that. Now, I grew up in rural Africa where life is lived in community. You know, I am because we are. In fact, our entire identity is rooted in the communal fabric. And to see it difficult here in the Western world, it's really, really tough.
2: So it's you make the most fundamental point, Saul, in that you know that you know from your experience what it's like to live in a warm-hearted community, and and so um, but there is the sense that um, it, particularly now I could get slightly critical of palliative care here that that palliative medicine has meant that that palliative the end of life care the people who are dying has become professionalized. And I think that the, the, the world of palliative medicine doesn't see the importance of social connectedness, of being really primary. So we, we started out a whole series of ways of how you build these supportive networks, about how you build that social connectedness. And when you start to ask about it, uh, who do you have friendly chats with? who can you rely on who's around you mm. what you find is that when you start exploring these networks they are actually readily available and and that that there are barriers to why people don't build these supportive networks so oh, i just want to be private i don't want to be a burden etc cetera, etc cetera. but these are barriers that can over get be overcome and in terms of you know your work with with um, patients and their families it 's possible to build these strong communities of support and and when you find you know that when you start looking at the resources of of how many people um, might be around in a network that you might find there might be anything from fifty to two hundred people who might be willing to step in and that 's without going to the communities because if you then start saying okay, we're going to start building compassionate communities around end-of-life care, then you find there's even more resource because so many people are willing to help out. And if you see that as a richness of resource which can help the um, this sense of we are all in this together, death, dying, loss, and caregiving is everyone's responsibility, then we can all help out. And you find that... It's not just the social connectedness of the person with the illness, it's a social connectedness of the people who are in that supportive network. and you can build that these webs of support which are nourishing and last for years. so uh, I think there's a uh, an important way in which palliative med palliative medicine, palliative care, end of life care is going to change over the next decade as a uh, the lights come on and, and, and we realize that actually the, the, the professional, the role of the professional is essential but not central. The central bit is our social connectedness.
0: I've run into too many times where I hear the pre- patients say, I don't want to be a burden. I know you made mention of this in the past and our, during our discussion. And I try to educate, I guess you would say, that they aren't a burden. And I, you know, use all kinds of attempts to try and recognize that fact that, you know, you need the help. We need the, that's why we're here. What do you recommend that, you know, when you say that somebody who, you know, I don't know if it's here, if it's worldwide, where people just want to be alone or you think they want to be alone while they die, which I don't agree with. But uh,
2: I, I think there are a couple of things to say about that. Um, and uh, you have to it's an individual thing that you work out with each person but but um, there's uh, I can tell you a couple of stories that really helped uh, me to kind of uh, develop ways of helping people who say that there was uh, I remember one couple where this guy he had a lung cancer and I had a conversation with him in the clinic about the importance of um uh, the importance of building these networks of support. And the next time I saw him was in the emergency department, and, and he was coughing up blood, and, and uh, it was in a terrible state. And there were two daughters there. He had four daughters in, in total, and the two daughters were there. And, and one of them said, "They don't answer the phone. They don't answer the door. They—it's very difficult to help them."
1: Hmm.
2: And and so I I said, "Well." You know obviously both parents are there. I said, "Well, why would you want to deny your two daughters who love you the opportunity of looking after you in the last bit of your life?" and that that kind of made sense to mm-hmm. them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The other thing is the uh, the other really important point to realize is that um, that the that that this sense of burden, uh, you know people have it. But it's not just the person with the illness, right because if there is one the main carer who's doing all the work, then their own health will really go downhill mm-hmm. and and that there is a whole series of things that people can do which will help to support the main carer do the what's needed to be done for the person with the illness and when when you have a moment where you know, somebody drops around a meal or a cake and just leaves it on the doorstep and says, I've just uh, got a cake for you. Not only is that sense of helping just heartwarming, it gives you a sense of value and meaning that you are connected to the people around you. So that there are, there are different ways of approaching this where you reframe it and say, actually, you know, one of the things is, <laughs> that it's not just about the person with the illness, you know. It's not just mm-hmm. about you. It is about how do you make it good for as good as you can do, as it can be for for your wife or your husband or whatever. We did this with my. Uh, so I've been doing this for years, and then my my mother was diagnosed with leukemia, and I was in hospital and uh, uh, where she was diagnosed, and my sister was there, and. And the diagnosis was such that there was no treatment available. We knew she was going to die relatively soon. So, at, in the hospital, we started organizing this supportive network. And so, when my mother went home, well, you know, there's my brother, my sister, and I, and and then my sister's children and my own children, and and then uh, friends of the family. We all gathered round, and there was this incredible thing that happened for a period of three weeks where everyone was there and 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 my mother felt supported my stepfather felt supported that that i actually saw it's an interesting one because we talked about it before my mother was the most content i'd ever seen her in her life mm, mm. just because she was surrounded by love and the relationships that developed in that time you know my family has not always been that harmonious. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Got <but> it. In, <laughs> in that time, that, that special moment, we created these warm relationships which endure to this day. You know, this is, these are things which go on for years. So I think that there's a uh, what you might call uh, particular skills that you develop that help to overcome the barriers that some people may feel about why you don't build these supportive networks.
1: Uh, with that, we'll take a little break. Our guest is Dr. Julian Erbo. He's also the host of the podcast, The Survival of the Kindness. We'll be right back.
0: Angel's Grace Hospice brings comfort, dignity, and peace to help people with a life-limiting illness live every moment of life to the fullest while providing support for loved ones. We perform hospice care in your home, nursing home, or assisted living community, depending on your individual circumstance. For more information, you can check us out at www.angelsgracehospice.com or you can call us at 1-888-444-8341. To comfort always,
1: this is our work. I'm Sola and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Dr. Julian Ebo, who I'm beginning to call the compassion evangelist. Um, you know, you spoke about uh, how, when the community came together and there's this sense of compassion and empathy for one another, it really improved some health outcomes. So can you tell our listeners the impact of community life on an individual?
2: So I, I think you can um, think about it from uh, from the from the perspective of uh, choosing what kind of a life do you want. Do you, when, when you when you go into your home, do you feel like you're surrounded by people that you're happy with, people that you feel secure with? Are you in a neighbourhood where you you know you you know the names of the neighbours? are you when you go down the shop do you know the name of the the man or the woman who's serving you in the shop do you live in a place where you are feeling content and happy where you have that wealth of the associational life do you want to live in that kind of a neighborhood or do you want to live in a neighborhood where you feel fearful when you step outside the door We all want to live in a neighborhood where there's a sense of belonging, where we feel connected to the people around us, where we feel safe and secure, where our own personal actions, it's easy for us to be kind and compassionate. So, on one level, we can choose what kind of a life we like to lead, and we can take direct action about. Just checking on our neighbors, asking the name of the person down the shop, or just being kind in small ways that has an impact. And because that's how we lead a happy life. There's another aspect of it, which is about uh, do we want to be healthy? And, you know, because most people don't want to um, live for however many years and then end up spending the, the last, I don't know, 10% of their life sick and unwell. And if you don't want to be sick and unwell, you have to really think about your social connectedness. And if you are sick and unwell, being socially connected actually makes a tremendous impact on your illness. And, and you can think that, um, that the effect of that, it's the, the, this, is a, this is a kind of key point. This is not just a nice to have. This is that absolutely vital for keeping us alive. You know, there's a terrific study done from 1938 onwards um, called the Harvard and Gluex Studies of Adult Development, where they chased initially, they, they um, trace the life of men from 1938 onwards every year. They uh, bring them in and they ask them questions and do tests. And, and the, uh, uh, the, the summary of uh, all of that incredible research, which is ongoing, which is, it's clear, you know, Robert Waldinger says, if you want to lead a long, healthy, happy life, it's all about relationships. Robert Waldinger is the fourth study lead. So it makes really good sense to do this because you will be happier and you will be healthier. And if you don't like that, then something's not right. And you need to look <laughs> again.
1: <laughs> so this morning in preparing for this talk, I read a lot of reviews about the book and one thing kept coming up that these concepts are really good, but it's more idealistic. So I want to give you a chance to respond to those who think this is just a dream. It can't be practical.
2: Okay. So- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do we get over that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I think that was the reason for writing the book was to say, look, here's some hard science. This is a. This is a. Uh, uh, we published an academic article about this. When you do it, uh, then um, then it has profound health uh, health outcomes. But what I would say is that you know the science is just the reasoning bit of it. You know, like it's just a story. You know, science. Goodness me. Oh yeah. If we say oh, it must be true because science says it's true. It's not enough. It's just not enough. You have to discover this for yourself. That that you have to think about your life and the first step is to realize that you are already compassionate we swim in a sea of compassion whenever you make a cup of tea uh, for uh, that that for someone else you're being compassionate when you hold a door open when you make a meal for your children when you ask your friends how they are you are being compassionate when when uh when, Saul, you're offering Joe the water, you're being compassionate. That these, these, <laughs> exactly. these things are going, <laughs> they're happening all the time. Just and, and the first step is to really recognize it, to see that you are already compassionate. Think about it and about how you move through this world. And then the second thing is, is to go, okay, um, I, I, I like this idea of being compassionate. I'm going to do little things in my life uh, just to be a little bit more compassionate. So make someone a cup of tea. Look over the garden fence and ask the neighbour how it is. Hold the door open for just like small things, just so that. And the third thing that will happen is that when you start to do that, when you embark on this journey, you will feel good. And that is the reason for doing it, you know, irrespective of, of whether some scientist or some clown comes on the show and says be more compassionate go and find out for yourself this is a personal journey and once you start you will be addicted you will not give it up Mm -hmm. because it is the way that you can feel good
1: there you go people test drive compassion (laughs) test drive it
0: (laughs) take take it for a spin that's exactly right
1: (laughs) So, talk to us about the Elevate Compassion Conference where you'll be speaking at on June seventeenth and eighteenth.
2: So, um, uh, thank you for mentioning it. Uh, uh, we um, we really wanted to be able to give people to to kind of give people the opportunity to uh, understand about uh, the importance of this and how to put it into action and. Uh, and we 've you know we got sponsorship for this uh, summit series um, because we wanted to make it free so that everyone can join in. We want to create this social movement where everyone has a sense of belonging where we can be inclusive rather than divisive that where we can get over some of the horrific scenes that we 've seen over the last over the last uh, year or so in particular with racial divide and disharmony and and all of the stuff that has gone on about separating people up and not having that sense of warmth, and we got together the best speakers in the world, myself excluded, of course, but we've got uh, we've got you know Julianne Holt Lundstadt, who wrote this paper on social relationships and and mortality, who is she's just she's not only is she a lovely person, she is just so clear. Um, about about why social relationships are so important we've got uh, Fritzi Horstman doing giving an incredible talk about the uh, compassion prison project is that you most people in prison are suffering from multiple adverse childhood experiences they are traumatized individuals and until we see that actually there's that, that, that are Prisoners need to be treated with compassion. We will just continue to see the terrors that are inflicted upon people happen again and again. We've got Cormac Russell, uh, who runs an organisation called Nurture Development and is part of the ABCD Institute, who does fantastic work all over the world about how you go, how you can practically take forward these steps of community building. We've got uh, Nahid Dasani from Canada, who's a palliative care doctor who um, who uh, he just does mesmerizing work giving end of life care to people who are homeless, people who suffer from structural vulnerability you know and he's he's just a fantastic speaker. We've got James Maskell talking about the power of groups about we can rethink healthcare by making use of the community of people working together. So we've got an incredible range of speakers. We've got uh, Frederick Riley from Weave. Uh, he's the chief executive of Weave, the social fabric pro- project that I mentioned earlier. Talking about how does this work in the US? How can you? How can people come together and create this sense of belonging and community? How can we heal the divides? Um, so, what we want is we want as many people to sign up and listen to these incredible speakers because we think it's time for change. It's time for like there's so many, so much of this work happening in isolation that we don't hear the voices because the voices are separate. And let's gather them together in one place, and let's start. Let's elevate compassion as a primary value to create this sense of belonging where we all have a part to play. And that's what, the, that's what the Summit Series is about. and We hope to create an organization after, which will be called either Compassionate Communities USA or Elevate Compassion, so that this voice is heard.
1: How can our listeners get a hold of you?
2: So uh, you can, uh, uh, we've got a website called elevatecompassion.org and you can go to that website and reg- register for the conference for free and be a, part, be a part of the change that you want to see. I would urge everyone to, to participate in this because it gives hope. It gives hope that, uh, that things can be better. And all you need to join up is to be human, <laughs> there are no other criteria.
1: <laughs> Remember, it is what survival of the kindest.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you very much, Doctor Eber.
2: It's a it's a pleasure to talk to you both. And uh, and uh, my only advice is that when the breaks come on. Keep, keep the recording equipment going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good point there. Thanks, Julian. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Blessings Thank to you. you. Blessings, that's right.
1: <laughs> that was Dr. Julian Ebo. Thank you for listening.
0: at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Jolia, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at Podcasting.com.